If you would take out your Bibles and open up to Ephesians, uh, we're in our um, second of uh, just the two-part, short two-part uh, sermon series here, Given Grace, Therefore Giving Grace, and uh, just spending a couple weeks to remind ourselves what God has given to us and what we, with his help, ought to be extending um, to one another. So um, if you would, bow with me, let's pray and as always, we want to ask for God's help to know his, his word, his revelation. Let's pray. Lord, you are a God who wants to be known. You have revealed yourself in, this, in your word. In the created world, in the person of Jesus, but you have uh, revealed yourself in your word also, Lord, that we might know you, that we might love you. And so we come to your word now, Lord, and um, as often the temptation, when someone is speaking, we have our defenses, we have our guards up, we have our reasons and our answers for why we do what we do and who we are. But I pray, Lord, now that we would open our hearts and our lives to you, not to this speaker, but to the Holy Spirit of God. We ask that you would use your word to penetrate into our hearts and lives and teach us. Lord, may my words be forgotten, but may the implications of your word be powerful in the lives of your people, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we looked at Ephesians 2 and the first uh, 10 verses there, and we were reminded really of the incredible grace of God to save us from our sins, to reconcile us to himself, and then to empower us for a new kind of life in the here and now. And, um, and this is all possible by his spirit. Uh, we looked at the scriptures that described our default position as we come into this world as dead in our trespasses and sins. And not only that, we were actively following the evil one, the one who has rebelled against the Lord. And we had become, therefore, rightfully objects of God's wrath because of his holiness. That was our position. Left to ourselves, that was as good as things were going to get. No change possible. Dead men do not revive themselves. But God, because of his great love, a love that's not in a response to us, not cajoled out of him from us, but a love that is sourced in him because of his great love, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ Jesus. And all of this is by his grace, his unmerited favor. We did not deserve any of it. None of it was an ought that we could have claimed. It was simply given. It is by grace that you have been saved. And so today we make that kind of the turn. This is the hinge part of this passage here. Primarily today I'm going to be talking about because of the grace we have received, we therefore ought to be giving much grace, especially to one another, especially in the household of faith, as we'll see here. And so as we continue on in the second half of this chapter, we see that God has not just saved us from something, the guilt and the consequences of sin and the judgment to come, but he saved us into something. He has saved us into the family of God, into the house of, uh, household of faith, with particular roles. And so we, the people of God, he uses a great word picture here, uh, are being built into a temple, 
a human structure that God is erecting by his own spirit and that all of us are indwelt by this same spirit of God. Really powerful word picture here. Uh, so this is what I want you to take away this morning. It's in the box right at the top in case you get distracted along the way, as some are prone to do. Church family, we are to stand strongly together in the grace that we have received, extending it generously to one another as God makes something beautiful in us. That's what we want to take away here. Uh, verse 11, Ephesians 2, verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that at that time, you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. Uh, and so our first point this morning, kind of this ugly reality that we sort of have to acknowledge. We were, and we're Gentiles, by the way, we were once separated from God and from his covenant people. That was once upon a time the way things were. In the first century world, there were the Jewish people, the chosen people of God, the covenant people of God, and everybody else, the Gentiles. We're in the everybody else category in this story. And I would submit to you that there was a greater division, a greater degree of separation, a greater animosity between Jews and Gentiles than there is between Democrats and Republicans today. Or vaxxers and anti-vaxxers. Did the temperature just go up in the room? Between Land Cruiser people and Chrysler people. Between cat people and rational people. <laughs> a greater degree of animosity, separation, antagonism between Jews and Gentiles than what you and I experience in virtually any social or cultural rift today. And that's important to understand because even from that point of difficulty, Paul argues for what he does. Uh, even after coming to Christ, uh, there was both a social and a spiritual barrier between Jews and Gentiles. The Jewish community uh, had accept, that had accepted Jesus as God's Messiah and began to follow him and worship him, they were not eager to recognize Gentile believers as their equals, as their peers, or as their spiritual family. Jews had been for centuries, generations, the chosen people of God, refugees, of Egypt placed within the promised land, marked in their bodies by the physical sign of circumcision, which they took great pride in. It was a physical reminder that they were gods, that they belonged to him. Now, I think it's a particularly strange sign, if I'm honest. I don't know why that one was chosen. I don't know why it couldn't have been a little tattoo or a funny haircut or something of that nature. But even though that symbol is maybe a bit strange, it was a matter of pride. A mark on one's body that they belong to God. So they were the ones that were looking forward to the coming Messiah, recipients of his covenant promise, considered themselves to be superior to the Gentiles in every way as the faithful people of God. 
Gentiles were referred to as, uh, by the Jews as Gentile dogs. They called them unclean, uncircumcised, uh, reminding them that the lack of this sign was clearly evidence that you're second-class citizens. And there were some features that they had for generations prior uh, not enjoyed. Separated from Christ, this is what Paul tells us, separated from Christ, excluded from citizenship, foreigners to the covenants without hope and without God in the world. They were coming from a hole in the ground, right? They were coming up from, uh, from big separation. And I think what's important for us to understand so that we can get the full implication of this passage is this. The animosity that was felt here was not just social or relational. It was spiritual. It had, a, it had a big context behind it. It was as deep and as core to a person's life as it gets, what one believes spiritually. There was a great tension uh, between the two. And one of the examples of this you can see was in the temple. In the first century, some Gentiles that had converted to Judaism uh, wanted to worship Yahweh. And so they would come to the temple in Jerusalem to worship these Gentile converts. Uh, but even in that, they were limited. They were segregated of sorts. Uh, they could only come into the outer courts of the temple. In fact, the historian Josephus records an inscription written on the wall at the temple that said this, no foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. That's not exactly a friendly church, shall we say. I, I think you lose a star or two on Yelp if you have that signage anywhere in and around your place of worship. That's the kind of verbiage that you put on your, uh, your hunting stand, right? Your bear stand. Don't be using my bear stand. This is mine. Or your blueberry patch or your fishing hole. Stay out. But that's kind of what Gentiles were finding at the temple. Can you imagine if somebody came to Bethel and we said, hey, welcome. It's you know, really glad to meet you. I see that you're new. Glad that you're here. Tell me a little bit about yourself. And they say, oh, I'm from California. And you say, that's it. Go away. <laughs> I'm from California, so I can say this. What Paul is doing here is he's addressing these Gentile followers of Christ, reminding them of their past exclusion. And by contrast, affirming to them their new status as fully-fledged citizens in the kingdom of God. No longer back-row Christians, but backstage past believers and part of the family. And that's what he is reminding them of because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, they're no longer outsiders, foreigners, hopeless or without God. First-class citizens. Secondly, those who were separated have been brought near. So we kind of push on with this. Verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. One of the things that really stood out to me this week as I was studying and preparing uh, this morning was just this sense that the gospel doesn't just have 
salvation implications for us. It doesn't just deal with our sin and our status with God. It has social implications for us. It affects how we relate to those around us. And this passage, this second part, almost anchors on the backside of it, that second part of how we relate to one another in light of the gospel. Um, some interpreters uh, will look at this phrase here, destroying the barrier, taking down this wall of hostility, and they will think that Paul uh, is referring to this wall that I mentioned a little bit ago in the temple, or sort of the court of the Gentiles, this separating wall. Um, and he might have had you know, that visual in mind as he penned this, but that wall was still standing at the time that he penned it. So it kind of leads us to ask the question, well, then what's he referring to here? What wall has been torn down? And uh, what we have to understand is that this dividing wall that Paul's talking about is the relational strife that these two groups of people were dealing with. Uh, and it all centered around how one approached the law, their observance of it or their non-observance of it, uh, specifically in the, and, and, and circumcision being one of those incidents. The Jews, or to the, to the Jews, the Gentiles were considered unclean because they didn't practice the law. They didn't do these things. In the old uh, covenant of Judaism, observance of the law was the way that one showed your faith, expressed your faith and devotion to Yahweh. Um, last summer, we went through the book of Galatians and we learned that the law was never given so that it would be a means of salvation. Uh, the law was not meant to save, it was meant to show it was meant to show God's holy standard and how far we are away from it so that we might see Christ and what he does for us and receive him. That was the purpose of the law. So when Jesus shows up in the scene, as he says in Matthew 5, do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus performs the law for you. He accomplished what you couldn't, what we have seen generations before us be unable to do. He is the law keeper because we're law breakers. He fulfilled them for us. So he doesn't abolish the law, but he makes it such that now through trusting in him as our law keeper, we are reconciled to a holy God. Now, I think on one hand, it's easy to read this and think, well, you know, this was about Jews and Gentiles. This was about back then and back there. This isn't really about us. This is just an historical reference here. No, this is about you and me. This is about the means by which you and I find peace with God through the gospel. But also, and maybe surprising to some, it's about the radical peace that Christians who share Christ and the Holy Spirit of God the peace that we are to have with one another. And that might be the radical implication uh, that gets underscored here today. Uh, this brings us to our third point. We are being made into a temple inhabited by God himself. This is the construction project that God is doing. His purpose was to, this is verse 15. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death, we would expect it to say, their sin. But what does it say? By which he put to death their hostility. 
We see the social and relational implications of the gospel here. I think that's what's so fascinating about this. We expect Paul to be talking about sin and salvation, and he does, but he bangs on and on and on about the relational and social implications of the gospel in the body of Christ in the church. Verse 17, he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to you who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. In other words, whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, and by the way, that's everybody, we now can belong to God through Christ Jesus by what he has destroyed, our sin, but also the hostility to one another, and therefore we are one united family of God. Which brings us to our fourth point. In Christ, we belong to God, but also to one another. 19. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole body is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. I love the word picture that is given here. A temple being built up with you and me as stones or living stones as the apostle Peter uh, calls us. Uh, probably good that God is using living stones right now and not sheets of plywood because plywood's pretty expensive right now. So is olive lumber. I've got to build a deck this summer. I wish it was a different summer. So, um, But we are being built together in this new structure, a structure such that we belong to God and also where we belong to one another. If I were to ask you this question, what comes to your mind when you think about the church, what pops into your mind? It's rhetorical. Don't answer aloud. We're in church. Uh, earlier this week, I was driving here, and it was just a beautiful morning. The clouds were, you know, just kind of varied, and the light was sort of, pure, you know, just doing all kinds of radical things in the sky. It was crisp, and it was a little bit chilly, but you could tell it was going to be a nice day. And as I pulled up to the church... The sun was rising, and it was kind of just behind the steeple here, and I thought, that is just beautiful. So I just snapped off a quick picture with my phone and put it out on Instagram and whatever else, and um, it, was, it was just great. Maybe that's what comes to your mind when you think of what is the church. Maybe you think of a building, a steeple. Uh, maybe you tend to think of uh, the institution or the organization uh, of the church. Uh, for some of you, you probably think of the physical place. You came to the church this morning. Uh, maybe you think of the church as the practice. No, no, the church is what we do. We've, we're listening to the word of God. We're worshiping and song and, and other ways. But I would just tell you this, that the church primarily is not a where. It's not a what. It's a who. You're the church. That sounded a little like Dr. Seuss just then, right? Church is not a where or what, but a who. You don't go to church, you're, you are the church. God is making you into his church. 
The images that he uses of it because of his love and affection for it are profound. The church is his bride. Ask me what I love on this earth more than anything else. It's my bride. What stronger word could I use for something that, I'm, that I love and that I'm devoted to? My bride. This is what we are to the Father. We're his bride. He refers to us as vine and branches, right? With his power coursing through us. A temple that he inhabits. Living stones. Rich pictures of the church. God loves the church. And it's not about the where or the what or the building. It's about you all and how we church together. God loves the church. I think it's fascinating too when we realize that not only does the Holy Spirit indwell us, we can say that easily. Oh yeah, the Holy Spirit indwells me. That's great, that's great. But guess what? The same Spirit in you is the same one in me. You don't have your own little personal version of it. And me, mine. The Spirit of God, the same Spirit of God is in you that is in me. What kind of a unity and affection and devotion does that compel from us for, for one another? I like what Russell Moore has said about the church. The church is a signpost of God's coming kingdom, a preview to the watching world of what the reign of Christ is to look like, a colony of the kingdom coming. That's kind of radical and important when you think about it. So let's take this message out of Ephesus and let's assume that Paul's not necessarily talking to the Ephesians now or to the Colossians or to the Thessalonians, but that he is bringing these truths to bear on the Bethalonians. Okay, that's y'all. <clears throat> what would he have us as the Bethalonians take away from these theological truths in 2021? I think one uh, clear takeaway is this, that we have to have grace with one another in our differences. I have been arguing from a greater to a lesser that the differences between Jews and Gentiles of the Old Testament or in the first century world were greater, more significant, and harder than the differences that we experience today. If Paul can call them to unity because of the gospel, he can call us to unity for the gospel, Right? This year has been challenging, and I would say, here's sort of one of my pastoral reflections on the year. A great number of differences, of differing values within the body of Christ have been exposed in a very short amount of time. And that has caused a lot of friction, where we have not had great amounts of time to deal with that and to learn to deal with it with grace. And a lot of personal convictions and feelings that we normally keep in the periphery of our lives have had to come front and center because of policymaking. That has created a lot of tension and has made for a very difficult year. Nevertheless, if Paul can call the Ephesians of Jews and Gentiles together to practice unity because of the gospel, how much more so us, the Bethlehemians in 2021? Uh, secondly here, we got a lot of new people at this church. Some have found us online. Some of you are, you know, this is your first Sunday and I'm welcome. I'm so glad you're here. It's been a hard year to get to know people too. We don't know who's new, who's been watching online for many months, who just came back, who wants to be greeted or what to do. It's hard. We don't know. Church family, just greet people. Put a smile on your face. Welcome. Be willing simply to say, I haven't met you yet, 
Those are the magic words, by the way. Because sometimes you walk up to someone and go, are you new? And they say, I'm an elder. I've been here for two decades. <laughs> what? what do you mean? That's the fear we all don't want to do, right? We don't want to step into that one. Get over it. Just walk up to someone and say, I haven't met you. Now, maybe they'll tell you, yeah, you have. Three Sundays in a row. <laughs> and you can say, I'm dumb. It's just that's the problem here. I'm not very smart. Just get over it. Fall on your sword. Greet people. Keep greeting them. Keep welcoming them. And then thirdly, I would say that be generous in offering community. Not everybody's in the same place with community in, your li in their lives. You might be sitting here thinking, I've got rich, robust community. I've got people with refrigerator privileges in my house, and we worship together. It's great. Cool. Share that with someone else, would you? Because not everybody has that. Early, earlier on in this year, when this all started, um, I had a, a single woman in the church send in a prayer request that broke my heart. This is what she said. No one has touched me in eight weeks. What, what would that feel like? To be that isolated, to not have human touch. If you have a spouse, if you got kids, grandma, sister, family, very, very close friends, you probably did okay. But especially some of our singles have felt very alienated, very isolated, even to be without human touch. If you've got community in your life, be generous and share it with others. I like what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, nothing like finishing off the sermon with a German name like Dietrich Bonhoeffer. It is not simply to be taken for granted that the Christian has the privilege of living among other Christians. There are people in parts of the world, there are people that have lived in centuries before us that were alone with the gospel and lived out a relatively solitary Christian life and would have loved to have the opportunities that you and I have. Now, I'm going to move on. Some of you are going, wow, he's done already. 26 minutes. That's a record. No, you know better than that. I want to move to a second part of this. I want to put some real practical tools in your life for how we go about what Paul is talking about here. How we go about extending grace to one another, particularly for that one who is difficult for you. I could almost ask you to stop for a moment Give me a name and a face. No, don't give it to me. Give yourself a name and a face. The person that is difficult for me. How do we go about extending grace to them? Okay? So here's some real practical tools for you. I have them in your notes, but I'm going to actually ask you to, to just put your notes down. Don't look at them. Just give me your eyes and your ears. Let's talk through it. You can refer back to them. Uh, I'm organizing these tools in three categories. The first is theological. The second will be relational, and the last one, teleological, and I'll unpack that in a moment. Real practical tools for how to extend grace for the one who is difficult to you in the theological realm. First of all, remember that person's inherent value. Remember their inherent value. We don't get to just dismiss somebody as a fool or as a nothing. Every person each person, even the person who is difficult for you, is someone whom God loves and someone for whom Christ died. In God's wisdom and in his grace and in his imagination, 
he considered this person. And he made them. He brought them into being and gave them life and gave them a body and put them in time and space. And not coincidentally, he put them into your life. That is not by accident. He has fitted them and called them to a particular ministry. I like what C.S. Lewis says about this. He reminds us that we've never met an ordinary person. This is from the weight of glory. Every person that you meet is an eternal being. Every one. They will either spend eternity with the Father in a glorious, some kind of glorified body and wonderful existence, or in eternity, suffering and conscious punishment in hell. That is what the scripture teaches, like it or not. Every person you meet is an eternal being. That's who we're interacting with. And C.S. Lewis comments on that by saying, there are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. That's what's at stake. That person who is difficult for you has this kind of inherent value and this kind of eternal existence. So how important is your relationship with them? Secondly, rejoice that God has made people different. Rejoice that God has made people different. Can you imagine if there was a whole world of Eric's out there? Um, you should be recoiling in fear. That would be bad. There would be a lot less cats in the world. Uh, there would be more land cruisers and there would be way too many people trying to fish my trout stream. But thank God there is not a world filled with Eric's. In the wisdom of God, he has made people wonderfully diverse. A complex and diverse creation. And I would remind us all that the people of God are not white conservative evangelicals. The people of God come from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. And it is arrogance to think or say or act otherwise. And these people have different personalities, passions, giftings, and callings. Praise God for the diversity of his creation. In the scriptures, in fact, we find that maturity is described not by one's independence, but actually by our interdependence. A person who has something to offer the community of faith, but also has something of need from the community of faith. That's maturity. The body of Christ serving one another as we are each of us gifted and gifted differently. Um, I'm just starting back to the gym, playing basketball again. I'm about two weeks back in after a full year off. And I have found that a full year off of playing basketball does something to the human body. I hurt badly now after I play, especially my knees. Ooh, uh, Pastor Mark and I play together. And uh, he's also my uh, coach and personal trainer, self-appointed, I think, but nevertheless. I was telling him the other day that when I was trying to play, I said, I just don't feel like my legs are under me. Like if I make a cut or a jump stop or something, like they might just buckle. That's what it feels like. And he was reminding me that our joints are not just connected together by ligaments, which are like little rubber bands, <laughs> 
but by muscles, which is what really stabilizes any joint in the body, and so it is in the body of Christ. We are joined together by supporting ligaments and muscles. That's the image the Apostle Paul uses for the Ephesians. And we grow up as each part does its work. We're not all one and the same. We're wonderfully diverse. Praise God for that. Also in the theological realm, so practical tools for extending grace. Remember one's inherent value. Rejoice that God has made people different. And thirdly, recognize that the same Holy Spirit indwells us. I find that absolutely fascinating. Fascinating. You would think it would compel remarkable unity if the Spirit of God in you is the same Spirit of God in me, right? Maybe we don't listen to the Spirit of God well. In the second realm, the relational. Uh, Practical tools for extending grace, the relational realm. Number one, spend time listening to that person's story. That person for you, for whom it's difficult to extend grace, spend time discovering their story, which has to do with their past. Where did they come from? What was their family like? What have they been through? How did they meet God? What changes has God made in their life? Learn their story. And not just their past, but also their present, because God is rendering things in their life right now. What is their story? Because very often, that thing that irritates us about another person is not what we know, but what we don't know. We don't know why they do this, or why they do that, or why they feel this way, or why they feel that way. The equation that we have difficulty reconciling is often because there's a variable unknown to us. Spend time learning someone else's story. Secondly, in the relational realm, develop the skill of empathetic listening. That might be a new phrase for you. Empathetic listening. Um, I do this a lot as a pastor. I have to, in my mind's eye, when I sit, someone comes in to visit with me, I turn off a switch, or rather I turn one on. I'm here to listen to you first and foremost. And I'm listening not just to correct, refute, form arguments, debate. I'm not here to do that yet. I'm here simply to listen for understanding. That is empathetic listening. Listening for understanding. Why do you feel what you feel? Why do you do what you do? Until I have understood that, and until you know that I understand that, everything else down the line is just about worthless. People want to be heard and known before they want to be told. And that happens interpersonally as well. If we want to work on extending grace to others, learn to listen for understanding. Too often what we're dealing with is simply a person's words, thoughts, and ideas. And that's just the realm of where the skirmish happens. But it's the level of heart and desire and motivation. That's where the real issue lies. Empathetic listening means We'll have to suspend judgment until we understand. Rebecca McLaughlin, who is an author and apologist who comes out of Cambridge, says this. We need to work hard to understand why those on the other side of the fence from us believe what they believe. That's where extending grace comes into play. And if you're in a discussion with somebody like this, and you feel like you're not getting a fair hearing, you're not getting this listening or this listening from understanding, 
uh, that would be beneficial. Here's a little tool. Here's something that you can say. Would you please articulate for me your understanding of my position? It's a way of requesting or helping them to do what maybe they're not inclined to do. Thirdly here, remember your Augustine. St. Augustine has said this, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. But in everything, charity. I think that's a good little mantra. And then the last practical tool I put in your hand for this is what I'm calling the teleological (laughs) big word, which basically means... What's the point of this whole thing? Why are we here? You ever think about that? I mean, why doesn't God just go, oh, you're saved. You received Christ as your savior. Good job. Come on up. Why aren't we instantly teleported to heaven? He leaves us here, not just to circle the drain until the world ends. He leaves us here to be his witnesses and his ambassadors. And we do this individually and we do it corporately. And the way that we as a church act together with one another is one of the strongest evidences of whether or not the gospel is true for those who observe us. We are to have a collective witness. I'll close with this quote from Tim Chester about the church. The church then is not something additional or optional. It's at the very heart of God's purposes. Jesus came to create a people who would model what it means to live under his rule. It would be a glorious outpost of the kingdom of God, an embassy of heaven. This is where the world can see what it means to be truly human. So my friends, we have been given much grace in Christ Jesus, have we not? We therefore ought to be extending much grace, especially within the family of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that in one respect, you aired the dirty laundry of the Ephesians because in them we see ourselves. We can see and imagine the differences of opinions, the tensions, the rifts within that world, and we're all too aware of our own. But I pray that we, as Christians, who were dead in our trespasses and sin, following the evil one of this world, who had become objects of wrath, Yet by your love and your grace and mercy, you made us alive. If we've received that kind of grace from you, may we be those who can extend that kind of grace to one another. We pray, Lord, um, that grace would saturate our sense of ourselves and that it would animate our lives with one another. We pray in Christ's name, amen.